I need to tell you that I think Ohio must be one of the most lovingly warm AA and Al-Anon communities that I have ever had the privilege to be a part of. I'm serious. Even when we stood up to say the closing prayer last night, the resounding voices of everybody just gave me what I call now God bunch. He's called me some. But it, I was just stunned that it was, it, and I've been here several times, and every time I step off that plane and I walk into an Al-Anon or an AA group, I have, I, you just love me, uh, no matter what, and I really appreciate that. I am teaching a first grade right now in a little town called Granite Shoals, which is about a hundred miles west of Austin. And I have a little girl named Kelly, and every time I leave, I tell the children where I'm going, and I show them on the map where it is, and so, uh, Thursday, I said, you know, I won't be here on Friday. I'm going to Ohio when I got out the map, and I showed him where Austin is, which Rand Stills is on the map. showed him where Austin was, and then I showed him where Ohio was, and Cincinnati, and said, this is where I'm going. And I have a little girl named Tony. She said, well, what is the farthest place from here? And I said, if you mean in the United States? I said, I guess it would be up here in Alaska. If you want the farthest place from Texas. And she said, okay, so, but that's not what I mean. And I said, did you mean the farthest place in the world from where we are? And she said, yeah. So I got the globe down, and I kind of went all the way around. I said, well, it looks like it's somewhere over here in China. And Kelly said, why don't you go there? (laughs) I said, Kelly, do you really want Miss Butler to be gone that long? And I was starting to have my feelings hurt. And she said, no, don't you want to see what the people are like and what happens? Don't you want to go have fun over there? And I thought, oh, the joy of being six years old. You know, what a pleasure. My name is Stephanie, and I am a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, everybody. You know, I've noticed that the AA members, and in Texas, they always say, you know, by the grace of God and the uh, fellowship of the program and uh, you know, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since. And so one time I thought, I wonder what I would say as an Al-Anon member. Let's see. By <clears throat> the grace of God, the power of the program, and the loving fellowship, I haven't found it necessary to control another human being. Since uh, 10 o'clock this morning, and so that would be November the 8th of 2003. Uh, <laughs> I do want to give you, though, what I consider to be my commitment date. You know, I was in a at an Al-Anon AA meeting one time, and I had said that, you know, since July the 24th of 1985, I have been in recovery. And this guy came up, and he said, so how do you know when you have a slip? He said, are you trying to tell me that since 85, you have not had a slip? And I said, no, I slip all the time. I mean, so I, I started, I went home and asked my sponsor, how can I tell him that, you know? And she said, it's the day that you made the commitment. And I have. I have been at an Al-Anon meeting every time I had the opportunity. I have worked the steps. I have, you know, read my literature since July the 24th of 1985. And that's what I celebrate today. Uh, you know, I'm not well yet. I have a long way to go. But I am bound and determined to be here and to be taking my last breath day. And my birthday was... Um, I lettered, and I wanted to thank the committee in Georgia. We just, you know, I got a letter, and I have had calls from Debbie, and it was wonderful to get off the plane yesterday and to stay with the voice that we've been visiting with over the phone. And Debbie has a quality that I really respect and admire, and it's 
gift for the listeners. He is a beautiful listener. And you know, I think that's when our miracle of healing begins. When somebody is looking at you. You know, that's, I, I felt like I was walking around all my life trying to take somebody seriously. But I didn't know what I wanted to tell you because I was really mixed up. But I wanted somebody to just give me their time. You know, give me that gift. And I thought, you know, this is my denial. When I got my ticket, it said that there was an L on it. So I thought that meant lunch was going to be served. So I get on the flight and I said to the hostess, so am I having lunch? And she said, pretzels. And so when I got here, the committee had a bag filled with apples and peanut butter crackers and some uh, little miniature scissors. So my needs were taken care of, you know, and I appreciate being a part of this beautiful story recovery. Uh, our literature suggests that we share with you uh, how sick we were, how well we are, and what helped us to get well, with the emphasis being on what helped us to get well. So that's what I'm going to try to do with you this morning. I was born December the 24th of 1944, so I'm 58 years old. And being a Christmas Eve baby, I really thought I was special. Uh, I used to introduce myself and say, Jesus and me, we're going to have a birthday, you know. And uh, that, you know, you could, that could go either way. You know, you could feel less than or you could just feel very, you know, superior too. I was born the oldest of three children into a Catholic Italian family. Uh, when I did a fork check, y'all encouraged me to go back and look at my family of origin because I really thought that it was all his problem. And I thought that I was, you know, really healthy. And I had to go back and look at my family in which I was raised. Uh, there, my uh, folks were social drinkers. They really just had to drink every once in a while. And they'd go to parties and have a drink. But we did not, they did not drink a lot. So I was really curious as to why I chose an alcoholic to marry. What I found out, though, was that my mother's family, she was one of eight children, and her daddy had a problem with alcohol, and several of her brothers. And so uh, my mother is what we would call an untreated Alanox. She was raised in a home where there was alcoholism, but nobody had recovery. You know, I hear people all the time saying, oh, she must be an Alanox, you know, because they think if you hang out with an alcoholic, she must be an Alanox. Well, you know, if you just hang out with an alcoholic uh, and you are an untreated alcoholic, but if you go to meetings and you read the literature and you can get a sponsor and you work the steps and you think you're an alcoholic. <clears throat> so I was raised by an untreated alcoholic and I was raised by a workaholic. My dad had two jobs and uh, one of them was being a school teacher and so he worked lots of times and he was, he was there physically for us but he was not there emotionally. I was raised with some beliefs that I have learned to discard today. One of them was, if you did good, you got good. So I believe that this whole deal was a reward system. You know, I thought, I'm going to color in the lines. I'm not breaking any of the rules because I want all of the gifts. And the first time I told a lie, I was scared to death that I was going to die before I got confessed. You know, and so I had, I was a really, really good girl. I, and I did whatever was asked of me because I was afraid. I lived in fear, that fear that David talked about last night. You know, that I guess we all grow up with that, you know. Uh, I, I was afraid that I wasn't going to do it right and that I wasn't enough, and so I tried really hard just to make the mark. Um, and in my family growing up, I don't, know, I don't know where I heard this. I don't know how, you know, it came down to me, but a God that I adopted was my dad. 
I idolized my dad so that my God had human characteristics, you know, and uh, if dad said he was going to be there and he wasn't there, then it was almost like, you know, that, that was part of how I saw my higher powers be also. I also was raised in this home where anger was expressed one time in the 18 years that I lived at home. My mama got mad at my daddy one time. He walked, started crying, she walked out, slammed the door, got in the car, and drove off. So I never saw that feeling dealt with appropriately or resolved. Now, I know that I've heard lots of people in the AA and Alan range talk about being raised in a rageful home, and I know how damaging that can be. I also need to tell you that I think being raised in a home where that feeling, that emotion is not expressed appropriately can be just as damaging as I was scared to death that anybody was ever going to get mad. So that people-pleasing that we talk about in our Al-Anon program was probably my number one characteristic. That was what you would say about me. I will do whatever it takes to keep everybody happy because I am scared that you're going to get angry and leave. Bill and I had our first argument, and what did I do? I cried, walked out, slammed the door, got the car, and drove off. You know, I, and I don't remember how much when my mother came back or anything, so I just drove around, you know, and finally realized that I probably ought to home. <clears throat> but I grew up with a fear of anger. So, and this is where, this is how my belief system was put to place. Whether it was the Catholic Church, whether it was my mom and dad, it doesn't make any difference today. And maybe it was my little two brains that just assumed all this stuff, and this is how I started my life. I was born in Midland, Texas, but shortly after I was born, we moved to San Antonio, and that's where I grew up. When I was a senior in high school, I met this man that I fell in love with, his name Phil. We dated for four and a half years, and at the after we both graduated from college, we got married, and we moved to Austin, Texas. Now, Bill was not a drinker. I never saw any alcohol. Didn't see anything like that. Uh, he, you know, but he went to work for a company. And the company, he would travel some and he'd call in and say, wow, we just had happy hour and we had this great meeting. Or he'd say, wow, I had a drink on the plane. It sure was nice. And so then I started listening to this and I started watching the beers he was drinking. And when we were in Austin, I was a school teacher. That's all I'd ever wanted to do was be a mommy and a school teacher. So I was teaching school, and he's working, and he's going on these trips, and I'm watching him bring home a six-pack of beer, and I'm thinking, I don't know why that man needs to have that beer. And I started paying close attention to his beers, and I started watching him. We'd only been married a couple of years. Um, but let me tell you what happened. In uh, July of 1968, I had gotten pregnant. I was eight months pregnant. And our Catholic Italian family was having a big wedding back in San Antonio. So Bill and I went down to San Antonio for this Catholic wedding. I'm eight months pregnant. Everybody's so glad to see me. I'm going to have a baby. Oh, we're so happy for you. Uh, big Italian thing. And it was wonderful. It was really, we were glad to be there. And they had champagne flowing and everybody was so happy. It was a beautiful Saturday morning. And after the ceremony and the reception, we went out to the airport because uh, my cousin and his new bride were flying to Hawaii for their honeymoon. So we are standing in the San Antonio airport, and I have my relatives coming up to me saying, your husband is the funniest thing. I have really enjoyed visiting with him. And I'm saying, my husband? Uh, you know, I, I think he's hysterical, and I love being with him. But he was raised by a single mom as an only child. This big family stuff was really uncomfortable for him. So I'm thinking, I don't understand this. And a few minutes later, somebody comes up and says, Bill has just tested his digits. You must just love 
being married to him, he's the funniest thing. And I'm thinking, well, good. Maybe he's decided to get with the program. And so a few minutes later, Bill comes up and whispers in my ear and says, I'll be back in just a minute. I said, okay. So we watch the plane take off and we're waiting and then we get ready to leave the airport and we can't find Bill. So we have him paid. We go out to the car. We walk up and down all those long hallways. We can't find him. We don't know what's happened. So my brother-in-law at the time comes back and he says, Stephanie, I found him. And I said, where? And he said, he was cashed out in his box. And I said, no. And he said, yes. Yeah. So we had to get the airport attendant to come take the door off the stall. Then we had to get a wheelchair. We had to pull his riches up. You know, he is really passed out. <clears throat> we put him in this wheelchair, you know, and my brother-in-law says, here, I'll push it. I said, no, I will push it. He's my husband. So I'm eight months pregnant, you know, this big old belly, and I'm pushing this wheelchair. And Bill's sliding out, and we're shoving him back up again. And he's sliding out, and we're shoving And my mother says, oh, my gosh, my son-in-law is drunk. I said, Mama, he is not. He's sick. She said, Stephanie, this man is drunk. I said, Mama, don't say that. I said, he's sick. And this is where my denial got in place. July of 1968. Nineteen years later, I was standing in a psychiatrist's office saying, do you think my husband could have a brain tumor? He is saying to me, you know, Miss Butler, your husband is an alcoholic. I said, no, I think he's just got a brain tumor. I said, I want you to go in, operate on that sucker, pull it out, and let us get on with the rest of our lives. You know, that was the way. Oh, denial. What a powerful, powerful thing that is. Well, in August of 69, the most beautiful of age girl you ever saw was born. Her name was Laura. And all I'd ever wanted to do was be a mommy and teach school. I got to teach school, and then I got to be a mommy. Twenty-one months later, Wes was born. So this has got to be, right, your perfect family. You know, Bill and I are in love. He's going to work. I get to stay at home and take care of this beautiful daughter and this wonderful son. I'm just as happy as I can be, except there's this little empty spot inside of me. And I need to get that filled up somehow. So I volunteer for every committee there is. I'm PTA president. I'm a Brownie Scout leader. I helped build a place game on the team. I just did everything. I When Bill went, and then I wanted to love. He loved me back then was enmeshment. And if Bill went hunting, we all went hunting. And if Bill went fishing, we all went fishing. And, you know, it was like if you're together, you're going to love each other. And that's what love is. Well, <laughs> I nearly love three people to death. Um, because I thought, and all I was trying to do the whole time was get my insides filled up by the outside. I needed for you to tell me I was okay. I needed for you to tell me that you loved me. I needed for you to spend time with me. And I was just doing everything I could. And we had things going. You know, Wes was playing soccer and Laura's and Brownie Scouts. And I'm trying to be a PTA president. And I've got all these balls in the air. And I'm trying to keep them going. And I need to stop for a second and tell you this little story. We had a border collie, and her name was Flopsy. And Flopsy was going to have a litter of puppies. And we had never seen that happen before in our home. So everybody's so excited we could hardly see it. And we just wait and watch her belly get bigger. And we're just thrilled to death. So one day I decided I should give Flopsy a bath, you know, right before her big delivery day. And so uh, I shampooed her. And then I remembered sometimes you towel dry the puppies and sometimes you just let them run and dry, you know, freely. So I picked up the bottle of shampoo and it says, do not use on pregnant dogs. Oh, my God. So I called the vet. 
and I said, Dr. Tiger, you will not believe what I've done. I have saved Foxy and this man, too. I'm afraid I have killed this little puppy. And he said, well, Stephanie, it's a couple of weeks yet until the puppies are coming. Let's just wait and see what happens. So sure enough, two weeks later, almost to the day, Foxy had her first puppy in it for one day. And I called Dr. Tiger, and I said, oh, my doctor, I have killed this little puppy. And he said, well, there's more in there. Let's just wait and see what happens. So sure enough, Foxy had another puppy, and it was born alive. So I called Dr. Tiger, and I said, Dr. Tiger, I did not kill all the puppies. We have one that's healthy. He said, that's great, Stephanie. And about an hour later, Flopsy had another puppy, and it was okay. So I called Dr. Tiger. And I said, Dr. Tiger, it's really okay. I didn't kill them all. We have, well, you know, to make a long story short, Flopsy has seven puppies. I called Dr. Tiger after every puppy. I felt so responsible. You know, this is how I had felt my entire life. I was responsible for the good things. I was responsible for the bad things. Oh, I was so tired. It was really hard. Well, her last puppy that she had had trouble breathing. So I called Dr. Tiger and I said, Dr. Tiger, this one is having trouble. And he said, do you have any whiskey in your house? Yes. And he said, well, I want you to take some and put it on the teaspoon. Put it in the puppy's mouth and kind of massage it down her throat. It's going to break up all that slim and she'll be okay. I said, okay, I think I can do that. And he said, and then, Stephanie, I want you to sit down and drink the rest of that bottle. (laughs) (laughs) It's a true story. And I thought at the time, oh, if I could, I would. I'm so tired. You know, but we got the puppies there, you know, and that was the important thing. And, you know, but that's how I felt. I was so responsible. If you were happy, I was responsible. If you were sad, I was responsible. It was all my fault. Or, you know, or all my fault. You know, I got a reward or I got punishment, no matter how you look at it. You know, what an illusion. You know, what an illusion. When I came here and they say, you are powerless, well, I had trouble with that. But after being here for a while, I'm beginning to think, you know, we must just think we have power. It just must be an illusion we live with. Well, in the uh, spring of 1985, our beautiful daughter, by the way, this daughter of ours, she was the one that grew up. Well, I had, like David said last night, we were fine. I had a sign in our front yard that said, we are fine. Thank you very much. You know, Bill's drinking is escalating and you know, Wesley is just trying to get his insides filled by the outside, so he's into all these sports. And, you know, Laura is the one that's standing out there going, something's wrong with our family. You know, and we're saying, sit down and be quiet and change the way you are. And, stop. you know, we're just fine. We're just fine. So Laura, she's now a teenager, and she had to have jaw surgery. She's a beautiful girl when you look at her uh, face on. But when you saw her profile, her chin was very protruding. So, and she was in the choir, and sometimes her mouth would just lock open. So they went in, and they split her bone here, and they pushed it back and wired her mouth shut. That was the good part. Uh, they, <clears throat> they wired her mouth shut, and she had an attitude, oh, my gosh. You know, when we came in the program, she'd walk in, and they'd go, here's the daughter from hell. You know, uh, that was Laura. She was angry. Oh, my gosh, she was angry. But until when they wired her mouth shut, we loved that. But she didn't still tell you where to go or what her mouth wired shut. Anyway, I, when I'm in, we're getting ready to do this major surgery on this beautiful daughter of ours, and I looked around, and I'm in that hospital room all by myself. There is no bill. And I'm starting to think, 
you know, something's not right here. I don't know what it is, but I'm here all by myself. And it was that moment of clarity that I believe all of us have before we get here. And it was like I am doing this marriage and this family all by myself. And I, it, after all these years, Bill's drinking was progressing. He drank at home, but he would come in and he would say things like, what's for dinner? And I would tell him, and 10 minutes later, he'd come in and say, what's for dinner? You know, that's when I thought he had the brain tumor. But um, I didn't understand the, the progressive degree, the disease of alcoholism. I didn't know that he was getting worse with every drink he took. And I was keeping an eye on him. Oh, man, I was watching. And I was getting really tired. But in that hospital room that morning, I realized that I needed to start paying attention to what was really going on. And I did. And I found out that Bill was physically present and he was not there. And it felt like my dad. It felt like, you know, my dad was at the house, but he was never there for me emotionally. Bill wasn't there for me emotionally either. And here our daughter was having this major surgery and there was no Bill. So I watched and I and I paid attention and I, I started seeing the, the signs that we watched. And I realized that this man's drinking was increasing progressively. And he was getting sicker and sicker. And I realized I loved him too much to watch him do this to himself. And I, I couldn't take it. I could not do it. Uh, you know, we, when I got here and y'all talked about step two and you talk about insanity and I started thinking about what my behavior was like during those last few months of his drinking and before I got here to you. And I realized that when he would go in to take a shower at night, he kept his vodka in a paper sack behind his uh, seat in his pickup truck. And he'd go in and take a shower and I'd get my little flashlight and I'd walk outside and I'd pull that paper sack down and I'd hold that bottle up to that flashlight. And I'd look, and if the level of the liquid was high, I would go in. I was loving and kind and caring and affectionate, you know. And then a few days later, I'd go out at nighttime, and I'd sneak out there, and I'd hold up that paper sack and that box. And if it was down, I'd go in, and I was withdrawn and pouty, and, you know. Um, and I, after I got there, I thought, I wonder how many people in the real world let their emotional level be decided by the liquid level in a bottle. You know, if it's high, I'm happy. If it's low, I'm sad. You know, and then after Bill got sober, he said, Stephanie, it was a new bottle every day. <laughs> he was drinking a fifth of vodka every day. And I was thinking that I was watching the same bottle, you know. Um, oh, the insanity of it all. But by the grace of God, on July the 24th, right before then, I said, you know, Butler, you've got either got to get sober or you've got to get out. I love you too much. I cannot watch you kill yourself this way. And he was so angry, and he said, well, you know, if you had to live with you, you'd drink too. You know, and I thought probably I would. If I, you know, if I could, I would. You know, he used to say, if you were married to a Catholic Italian, Capricorn, untreated Alamon, you would have needed to drink too. You know, and I, you know, I bought that for a long time. It was all my fault. Um, well, Bill did leave, and uh, I cried. I was so, when I walked in, you talked about physical, emotional, and spiritual bankruptcy, and that was me. I was exhausted. It took me forever just to dust a room. I just, I'd have to sit down and rest. I was crying nonstop. I was giving my children these horrible mixed messages. I'd be standing there 
washing dishes and Laura would come in and go, Mom, what's the matter? And I'd go, <laughs> you know, and she went, oh, Mom cries when nothing's wrong. You know, I just, and then Wesley, if I asked him to take out the trash, I just did what my folks did to me. You know, he would walk out and slam the door and I'd say, you don't need to be angry. It's not okay to be that way. You know, and then when I got here and you said, you know, what about validating that feeling? What about just saying to him, it's okay to be angry and I need you to take out the trash? You know, I never had that growing up and I did not give that to my own children. So I got here. A guy from work, from Bill's work, called me and said, I understand you asked Bill to leave. And I cried, yes. And he said, well, you know what? I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I would like to take you to a meeting. And by, I would have done anything anybody said. I was such a mess. And so he picked me up. And on July the 24th in 85, I went to my very first Alamon meeting. And I said, I don't remember a thing anybody said. I cried through the whole meeting. You know, but y'all hugged me and said, keep coming back. And you gave me a piece of literature. I don't know what it was. I cried the whole time. But Bill left, and he went and stayed with some friends of ours, and he tried to sober himself up. And he couldn't do it. And two weeks later, he called me, and he said, Jeff, I want to be sober, and I can't. He said, I'm having the shakes so bad, I can't even go to work. I can't do anything. I need help. So on August the 6th of 85, Bill went into treatment. And I'm telling you, I thought, man, that's all I ever wanted. I am so happy now. I have a sober husband. He's learning. I, you know, I come to meetings. And then you start giving me pieces of information that I thought I couldn't stand. You said it was a family disease. And you said if you raise children in this disease, you are going to be raising six kids. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? And then you told me, but. You did the very best you could with the information that you had at the time. So when I started looking back at my mom and dad, I had to believe that completely because I had to let myself off the hook. So I had to let my mom and dad off the hook. They did the very best they could. And you told me I needed a sponsor. And you told me to go to meetings and to read the literature and to get down and get dirty and get those steps done. And I'm telling you, I got a sponsor. Wow, Blanche. I didn't even know who she was. I just listened to her talk, and it was like an angel. So I asked her to be my sponsor and come to find out she had like 23 years in the program. <gasps> you know, but man, is she tough. And, uh, but you know what? Even with Bill getting sober, I, I kept on crying. I would go to these meetings, and I continued to cry. And I asked Lance, why am I crying? You know, he's sober, and I'm in the program, and we're doing the best we can. I don't understand. And she said, you're grieving the loss of a dream. You never intended for your family to be gripped in the disease of alcoholism. You're grieving the loss of a dream. And really, for a year, I cried at every meeting I went to. But a lot of things started to change at that time. Blanche used to say to me things like, you know what, Stephanie, do you know that this God of yours is not nearly as punishing as you're making him out to be? Did you know God only does good? You know, life happens. You know, and she would validate my feelings. She would say, are you angry? And I'd go, I don't think so. I think I'm just sad. And she, you know, and she would touch my face and she'd say, you know, if it were me, I'd probably be angry. She started giving me, you know, what is this feeling? How does it feel? And it's okay. It's okay to be who you are and feel the way you feel. And God loves you anyway. And Bill's going to his meetings. But you know what? This daughter of ours. 
you know, she's the one that's out there doing all this. We're not okay. She's doing this acting out. Oh, my Lord. Roll her eyes at me. Slam those doors. She was so angry. I was so afraid. Oh, I was afraid of my own daughter. So we took her to a psychologist and we said, fix her. You know, the problem is her. You know, we're okay now. And so this doctor met with Bill and met with me and met with Laura. And then he brought all three of us back together. And he said, well, of the three of you, I need to tell you that your daughter is the healthiest. (laughs) Oh, this teenage daughter goes, yes. You know, and Bill and I are just done. Bill doesn't want to pay me. You know, and he, because, you know, she was the problem. And he said, you know what? You've been drinking your problems away. You're in denial and you've been crying all the time. Laura's the one that is expressing her feelings. She's doing it inappropriately, but she is expressing her feelings. And she is today too. Uh, but you know what? So we're in recovery and I've got a sponsor. Bill's got a sponsor. We're going to meetings. But this daughter of ours, she did not like her daddy drinking, and she does not like her daddy sober. And so even though, you know, we think we're getting well, the disease is really a family disease. Laura continues to do what Laura knows how to do best. She's a senior in high school. She's got two months to graduate. She's been grounded because she didn't come home or something on time. And so she asked if she can go see a University of Texas baseball game, and we said, yeah, but come right back. And this was Sunday afternoon, and Laura did not come home on Sunday. And Laura did not come home on Monday. And Laura did not come home on Tuesday. Now, as a teacher, I'm thinking, all I want to do is get this kid out of high school. Then I don't care. You know, so I'm trying to figure out how I can do that. But she's not coming home, and we don't know where she is. You know, and so Bill's talking to his sponsor, and I'm talking to my sponsor, and we're going to meetings, and I'm in the meeting crying, saying, I've got to go find her, I've got to go find her. And one of the al came up to me, and they said, you know what, Stephanie, what would you be doing if this weren't happening? And I said, I don't know. I said, I, I thought, I think I better, we'd better call the police. We need to do something. What would you be doing? I said, I don't know. And they filed, you know, what would you, I said, you know what, I had the kitchen filled with dirty dishes. I would probably be washing my dishes. And they said, go home and wash your dishes. And then, I had gone back to teaching school because the kids were bigger. And so on Wednesday of that week, I was getting ready to get in my car after school, and it's like one of those little voices that we hear. And the voice said to me, if what you're doing isn't working, try something different. And I thought, well, I'm trying to love this kid into wellness. And you know what? I don't think I can do it. So Friday of that week, Laura called. And she acts as if nothing has happened. <laughs> she says, Mom, I'm going to be busy, and I'm not going to make it home in time for this show on TV, so would you please take this for me? And she says, but I'll probably be there like five or six this afternoon. And you know how you have those grace moments? I said, Laura, I love you, and you can't come home. And she said, what? And I said, I love you, and you can't come home. Now, this wasn't me. This is the mama that just loves these kids well. You know, and you certainly don't have a teenage daughter out on the streets with just too much less of graduation. But I said it, and I hung up, and I was so peaceful. 
and the next morning I fell apart. And I go to my Al-Anon meeting, and I go, oh, my God, we've got to go find her. I don't know what we're going to do. You know, and when Bill came home, I said, you won't believe what I did. And he said, what? And I said, I told her she couldn't come home. And he said, Stephanie, are you sure you should have done this? And I said, I don't know, but it was like what I was supposed to do. So he called his sponsor. What do I do? And he says, well, you know, while she's gone, why don't we see if we can find a place for her? Maybe she needs help. So Bill did. He found a treatment center that would work with acting out behavior management problems teenagers. And so, she, but she was still gone. And I didn't know where she was. And I prayed and I cried and I prayed and I cried. And Blanche said to me, Stephanie, did you know that God loves her more than you do? And I said, oh, I don't think so. And she said, yeah, he does. You need to just keep on praying. So one day I said, you know what, Blanche, I've just got to talk to her. She's over at her girlfriend's house. Can I just call her and tell her I love her? Oh, I was having such a hard time. And Blanche said, yes, you can. So Bill said, well, tell her I found this place. So I called her and I said, Laura, I love you. And I just need to tell you that if you ever want to get well, we've got a place for you to go. Well, you know. What do I have to do? You know, and we said, well, come with us. We'll take you. So Laura went into treatment in April of, 1987, of 1987. Laura went into treatment. And she had been living on the streets. She had been beat up. Oh, my gosh. The story. Oh, what happened to that child? Oh. She goes into treatment. We drive her up there. And uh, now I'm thinking we're okay. The phone rings after she's been there a couple of days. And she says, Mama, what would you think about me being an alcoholic? Well, I've never seen her take a drink. And I said, you know what, sweetie? Any 12-step program you want to latch on to, you go right ahead. And she said, well, we've been inventorying my drink. And I think I've got a problem. I said, all right. So Laura was in this treatment center for a month. And we went back up for family week. But she still had a little problem with her anger. And so they suggested that she go to a halfway house in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And she did that for four and a half months. So we go up there for her graduation from this halfway house. And we are sitting there. And my daughter, while she had been there, had graduated by correspondence from high school. And God had decided to give her a 12-step program to live the rest of her life by. This past April, Laura celebrated 16 years of sobriety. Oh, my God. I'm telling you, it is the program. You know, it's unbelievable what can happen when you just don't give up hope and when you just reach out and you ask for help. So Laura now comes back home. You know, and I thought about this. I thought, all I wanted her to do was graduate. That's all I wanted. And God said, oh, let me do a little bit more. You know, let me give you just a little bit more. So I look at the little piece of the puzzle, and God's looking at the whole picture. So now she's back in Austin, and she's working, and we're going to meetings, and I'm thinking everything is wonderful. And Bill, and I mean, really, I have the man back I fell in love with. We come home from our meetings, and it's like, what was your topic? Oh, mine was serenity. What was yours? Well, we did acceptance. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it just, we opened up a whole new way of communicating. It was just wonderful. And we had a support system in place. And I'm working with Blanche, and Blanche keeps telling me that I need to change my perception of my higher power. He's really big, Stephanie, and he doesn't do bad. And she kept telling me that. So now Wes is a senior in high school, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, hold on. Well, right before high school started, Wesley was still, he's one of these kids that's getting his insides filled up by the outside. 
So he's into every sport. He's playing football. He's doing baseball. And he's doing two-a-days. And one day he comes home. This is right before his senior year started. And he got really sick. He had a temperature of 104. And we put him in the hospital. He had viral meningitis. And he was so sick they had to pack his body in ice. They couldn't get his temperature down. He had a temperature of 104 for seven days. He was hallucinating. It was horrible. I called Blanche and I said, You know, I don't know why God would do this to us. Here is a family trying to live the spiritual life. We have done everything that's been asked of us. You know, and here's a kid that's never hurt anybody. How could God do this to us? And Blanche said, you know what, Stephanie, God didn't do that. Your boy got a virus. God will sustain you no matter what. And Bill and I went, and you know what? You had given me back a sober man. I wasn't in that hospital room by myself. I had a husband, and we held hands, and we cried together, and we prayed together. And we went to the doctor and said, tell us our boy's going to be okay. And the doctor said, I'm really sorry. I can't do that. And we, I told Bill, I can't, I cannot lose him. I don't know what I'll do. And I didn't lose him. Wes got better. And bless his heart, he wanted to play football so bad. And after he had been out of the hospital for about a month, he was back out on that football field. But he had lost all of his body weight. And he would hyperventilate and then have to pack his body in ice one more time. You know, he's his mama's boy. You know, fill my insides up by telling me I'm okay. Let me catch that pass. You know, let me run for that touchdown. That's what he thought he needed. Well, Wes does great, you know, uh, and it was a new experience for us, you know. I sat there holding my breath, you know, is he really going to walk across that stage? And he said, Mom, what are you worried about? I said, nothing. Well, we're doing well. We're okay. And so he starts the University of Texas. Laura's got a job and she's working. Bill comes home one day and he says, well, how would you feel about moving to Virginia? <laughs> Why would we want to do that? And he's been traveling in his work. He's been going back and forth, and he's had to travel some. And he got, he's tired of getting on airplanes. And he said, I can get us a job. I can get me a job in Virginia. Are you willing to go? And, of course, I said, yes, because I didn't think we would ever do that. Uh, the houses in Austin were not selling, you know. So I said, sure, we can go to Virginia. It'll be okay. And so I started crying, and I cried for months again. That's it. I do that. I cried so good. And so, you know, we put our house on the market, and the AA community came over, and they helped us paint, and they helped us clean, and we scrubbed wax off these old floors, and, you know, we got the house on the market, and houses in Austin, two, three years they were on the market. Our house sold in two weeks. Somebody said, I guess God wants you to go to Virginia. You know, and I'm talking to this AA guy, and I'm crying, because that's what I've been doing ever since Bill suggested this. And he said, you know what, you know what you've got in Austin. Why don't you go see what you've got in Virginia? I said, well, maybe we should. So Bill and I passed up and went to Virginia. And I'm crying. I said, Bill, I'm not really sure we could go. You know, I'm going to leave our kids and I'm going to leave my sponsor and I'm going to leave my gynecologist and I'm going to leave my grocery store. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to leave my beautician and I'm going to leave, you know, it was just like change for me is not comfortable. I don't want to change. And, but you know what? We're on the road. And did you know that they have got Al-Anon meetings in Reston, Virginia? They don't do it right. <laughs> but they've got meetings there. And so, you know, Bill and I, it's almost like a second honeymoon for us. The kids are in Texas. 
And here we are up in Virginia. Bill goes to work, and I find a job that I love in a, a private school. I had a wonderful time. And we get calls from the kids every once in a while, Mom. And I go, darling, I know you're going to take care of that. Call me and let me know how it turns out, you know. You know, and Wes is in college, and he's just, he's really struggling because he was very attached to us. And now we just kind of threw him out and we left town. But it's time, you know. So we get a call in January after we'd been gone. We left in 1990, and we had been gone for about a year, not even quite a year. And we got a call from Lauren. She says, Mom, I need to tell you something. I said, what? She said, I found Wes passed out last night. And I said, not my way. I said, this is the boy that watched this disease nearly kill his daddy. And look what it did to his sister. I said, not Wes. And she said, yeah, Mom. He had too much drink, and this boy was so passed out. She said, we were really afraid that he had gone into alcoholic shock. And she said, but I took him to his first AA meeting today. And I said, oh, my God. And so now Wes is over. So this past January, Wes has celebrated 12 years in AA. You know, they say that when one person gets well, it can have an impact. It doesn't mean everybody's going to get well, but it can have an impact. And it took a while, but you know what? Wes is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous today. And so is Laura. Oh, my God. I get God bucks just thinking about it right now. What a miracle. Then I called Blanche, and I said, Blanche, guess what? And she said, what? And I said, I think we use up all our miracles. I said, I don't know how many God has for us, but I'm scared. And she says, what do you mean? And I said, well, now everybody's sober. And so, I, you know, it's kind of like God went, okay, check off the butler, you know. And, you know, and she said, oh, Stephanie, please don't do that. You know, why don't you just keep showing up and see what happens? She had told me I need to get a sponsor since I was in Virginia. And she said she'd love me and we'd talk continually, but she thought it was important to have an eye-to-eye sponsor. So I did. I got one. And this gal and I started working together, too. And Bill and I started having meetings in our house. We had big book studies in our house. It was wonderful. We developed some beautiful friendships. Then I get another phone call. It's from Laura again. And she says, Mom, guess what? What, Laura? She says, I'm going to have a baby. I'm pregnant. And I said, no, you're not. (laughs) She says, what? And I said, you can't be pregnant. She said, Mom, I'm pregnant. I said, you cannot be pregnant. She said, why? And I said, because we didn't have a wedding. I said, you know, first you have the wedding, and then you have the baby. She said, Mom, I'm pregnant. And I said, no, Laura. That I don't want you to be pregnant. And she says, do you want me to have an abortion? I went, no. She said, do you want me to give the baby up for adoption? I said, no. And she said, what do you want? And I said, I don't want you to be pregnant. And she said, well, I am. And I called Blake. And Blake said, Stephanie, you're opting for one of your unavailable choices. You know. And she said, you do that a lot. (laughs) You want something that's not available to you. And I went, okay. So, you know what? I kept it a secret because I thought you would think that I was a bad mom and that Laura was a bad girl. So I didn't tell any of my Al-Anon friends. I was ashamed. And then finally, one of these gals who had been coming over to our house for the Bigfoot study, she was in Al-Anon. She and her husband were there one night, and Bill and George were talking, and I said, Reed, I need to talk to you for a minute. So we went outside, and she said, what? And I said, I have some horrible news to tell you. She said, what? And I said, Laura's going to have a baby. She said, oh. I said, Rita, this is horrible. She said, why? And I said, because she's not married. And she 
could step in right here and wait for it. Can't you just say it's the way it is? And I thought, oh my goodness, how many times have I judged and labeled? How many, and you know, Bill was drinking. I didn't know it was a disease. I thought he was a weak son of a gun. You know? Why did I do that? Why is judgment one of those things that's the first thing that comes to my mind and I find it wrong? So I started trying to accept the idea that we were going to be grandparents. I didn't mind that, but you know the circumstances. Well, it's June the 6th of 1996, the most beautiful baby girl was born. Her name is Stephanie Gray. Oh, my God. Bill was there, and he was sober, and Wes was there, and he was sober. I was crazy that I was there. <laughs> the AA community was there. You know, Laura and this guy had been dating for several years. They just didn't want to get married. It wasn't going to work. And she had that baby anyway. And you know what? I would have missed it. Uh, I thought it was going to be horrible. And here I am, a grandma. Oh, oh, I've never been so happy. I'm telling you, it was just unbelievable. And this little girl, bless her heart, this baby's been going to any meetings before she was born. And you know, when she was in the second grade, she was, she's just been a delight. Oh, she's just been a delight. She's also her mother's daughter. You know, Laura's favorite word when she was a teenager was whatever. You know, you'd ask Laura anything. Laura, it's time for dinner. Whatever. You know, and that naughty thing. You know, well, Grace is, you say, Grace, it's time for dinner. Yeah, right. You know, so we've got these two. Grace is in second grade. The teacher wants kids to stand up and introduce themselves. My granddaughter stands up and she says, Hi, my name is Grace and I'm an alcoholic and I've got seven years of sobriety. <laughs> I am telling you that teacher goes, What? And Grace, you know, with those hands on those hips, didn't you hear what I said? I'm an alcoholic and I'm sober. <laughs> well, you know, it's so the teacher calls Laura and Laura says, no, 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 let me explain. I'm the alcoholic. And the teacher goes, what? And Laura says, no, I'm sober. Anyway, you know, this do this grandbaby of mine doesn't know anything but sobriety. She went to the AA club in Austin and she said, I want to buy a big book. And this wonderful guy, Gerald, said, well, okay. And she said, how much does it cost? And he said, how much do you have? And she held out her little hand, and she had, I don't know how many, some odd cents. And he, he, he said, I have this much. And he said, that's exactly how much a big book costs. And he took her change and gave her a big book. And then she goes to her mom, and she says, I need a sponsor, Mom. you got to get me a sponsor. And then when the gals at Laura's sponsor calls her, and she, if Laura's in the shower, Grace is on the phone saying, you know what my mom's going to tell you. Have you written anything down? She said, you know, that book they call the 12 and 12, have you looked at that? You know, she's just unbelievable. She is such a character. And we need to save the care for her, too. You know, I love her. And she's got an attitude. And she, my sponsor calls her an old soul. You know, she is an old soul. She's wonderful. So I'm a grandma now. And so every time I can't, can't I get, I come back to Austin and I get to play with Grace and I, then I go back and I teach school and Bill and I are doing our meetings and I get another phone call. 
and this phone call is from Laura, and my dad has had an aneurysm rupture in his belly, and he died instantly. And as sad as I was to lose my daddy, I had done what you had told me to do, and I had worked the steps. I had done an inventory, I had done an eighth and ninth step, I had made amends to my daddy, and we were clean. It was clean. And I cried, and I was so sad, and I was so grateful that I didn't have anything left of I had no regrets. I had done what I needed to do. And it was because you had told me how to take care of all that stuff that I, the baggage I brought here with me. Now I have to tell you the part of my story that, you know, we were talking last night about how I wish I could change the past. You know, that's one of my big character defects. There are parts of my life that I wish I didn't have to share with you, and this happens to be the hardest one. And I still can't do it without crying. One of these days, I will. In February of 1994, Bill couldn't live with his humanness. He had eight and a half years of sobriety. And he cherished his sobriety. But he suffered from depression. And in a moment of insanity, Bill committed suicide. I didn't think I could stand it. It took every meeting. It took every hug he's given me. It took every piece of literature for me to be able to make it through those next few days, well, next few years. Oh, my God. I need to tell you something. AA works. Bill cherishes sobriety. I am not telling you it doesn't work. What I need to tell you is that depression is a disease, and if it goes untreated, it will kill you. He had been on antidepressants long enough. He had had the, you know, we knew he had from depression, but he always leveled out. And the last time he just took himself off, he was feeling so good. And you know, it was one of those things that just grabbed me. I went and visited with a psychiatrist after he died, and I said, what? Why? We were financially secure for the first time in our lives. Our kids were sober. We had a grandbaby. He loved his job. I loved my job. What? And he said it was a moment of insanity. Just a moment of insanity. The hardest thing I've ever had to do is call my children. And when I called Lars, he said, Mom, that can't be true. Daddy loves you too much. He would never go off and leave you. And I called Wes. And he said, Mama, Daddy loves you too much. After a while, I realized it's not about love. Love will not cure depression. It won't even cure alcoholism. He did love me. He was sick. Really sick. I, you know, and I've had people say, well, you knew, right? You saw it coming. Are you kidding? We had been to the grocery store. We had been out for dinner the night before. No, I didn't see it coming. Well, the AA community in, in uh, Virginia and his work wanted to have a memorial for him. And we did. And some of the teachers from my school came up and they said, who are all these people? You've only lived here four years and look, the church is filled. And I said, it's my friends. 
people that loved him through all this pain. And we brought him back home to Texas, and we buried him in Austin, and uh, had a beautiful AA ceremony. And you know, uh, the love that I feel and the respect that I have for the AA community. Because when I got here, you told me I would never have to do anything alone again. And I didn't. You were there for me every minute. I had to go into the house by myself and things like that, which were really hard. But, but I knew that I had a God that loved me. And that somehow or another, the realization after a while came through to me that, you know what, Stephanie, you need to continue to live. Bill has died that you didn't. And God gave you a life. About a year later, both of our children decided to get married. You know, and I was in seeing a counselor after Bill's death because my sponsor said to me, you know what, I need to tell you that this is not grief. This is trauma. You need to go see a counselor and talk about trauma. It's different. Trauma is when in one moment your entire life changes and it will never be the same again. It's an instant. And that's what has happened to you. So I was seeing this counselor and I told her that it looked like, thank you. I told her that it looked like Laura wanted to get married. You know, and this is a sober member of AA that she's been living with and, you know, and this counselor said, well, it's lovely to be a practice Mary. And I said, what? And she said, sometimes when kids at your kids' age lose their family unit, they need to recreate it as quickly as they can. They need to recreate a family unit. That's what Laura's going to do. So in April of 95, Laura got married. And in August of 95, Wesley got married. They both married people in AA. And I went, you know, and I tried to act like I was happy. Uh, because indeed I was. You know, indeed I was. It was just that, you know, what it was like, and Bill's not here. You know, and they're continuing on, and here I am. You know, so I have to do my life. Well, about two years after Bill had died, I was still in Virginia. The kids had kept saying, come home, Mama, come on. We want you. And I say, no, I've got this job I love. This is where Bill and I were, you know. Almost two years to the day, I walked back into that house, and I went, you know what? He's not coming home. It took me two years to get the message from here to here. I couldn't believe it. But I walked in and I thought, you know what? He is really dead. He is really not coming home. So I called the kids. And I said, well, Laura, how would you feel about your mom coming home? And she said, for real? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, Mama, I was loving and I called Wes and said, Wes, how would you feel about your mom coming home? There's a silence. <laughs> Wes! And you know what? I had been so enmeshed with him after, well, before Bill died, after Bill died. He was, you know. And so he said, you know, Mom? And I said, I know, Wes, you're married. You have your life. I have mine, too. I just think I need to come home. And he said, okay. And it was really all right with it. He just thought that he was going to have to take care of me. And uh, he didn't want to do that. So when I'm getting ready to leave Virginia, everybody's saying to me, where are you going? Are you going back to Austin? 
And I said, well, probably. And then I said, no, you know what? Austin's too big. It's got grown so much in six years. And I said, and you know what? Bill had invested some money over the years. And so I had been given this large amount of money. So I said, I think I'll just go find me a house that's on the lake somewhere. I love water. And, you know, in Virginia, the trees are so tall, you never get to see a sunset. I said, I think I'm going to go find a place where the sun sets. And I said, and you know what else? I've never lived in a new house before. I think I'll just buy me a new house. And sure enough, I live on Lake LBJ in Granite Hill, Texas. I'm in a brand new house, and the sun sets right out my back door over Pat Saddle Mountain. It is just beautiful. I call it our healing home. It, oh, my gosh. And I am so excited to be there, and I've got big plans. I'm going to get that little grace, and she and I are going to travel, and we're going to go to AA and Al-Anon conventions, and we're going to spend time together. And so I called the guy in Virginia that I had invested my money with, and I had said to him, you know what, I want you to send the money down here because I'm going to start, you know, using these guys to help me with my finances. I don't know anything about money. I didn't want to know anything about money. I've never had any money. I didn't even care. But I did know that it was going to give me an, uh, some freedom and some choices. Well, you know what? Bruce took my money. There was nothing for him to send to Texas. $350,000. And it's all gone. So, it almost felt like another death. I have to tell you that I thought, oh, my gosh, all that money that Butler had worked hard so hard all of his life, if he even had a sane moment wrapped around his suicide, it was going to be that I would be okay. And it's all gone. I need to tell you two things. One of them is when I was in Virginia and after Bill's suicide, I had hooked up with another sponsor. The sponsor that I had when I was there did not know what to do with me. My life circumstances were too big for her. She really, she didn't know what to do with somebody who had had a husband commit suicide. She didn't know. Well, there was this beautiful woman named Dawn. And Dawn and I started working together because Dawn knew pain. And so I had Dawn that I just loved completely. Dawn's favorite phrase to me always is, are you in present time? <laughs> no. Why would I want to be there? I'm worried about what I did yesterday, or I'm scared to death. You know, and when that money was gone, it was like I could hear Dawn saying, in present time, say in present time. In present time, what I knew was that I didn't have any money. I was going to have to do something about it. The only thing that I knew to do was teach school. So I found me a job teaching first grade in a school seven minutes from my house. And that's what I'm doing today. I teach first grade. Blanche and I have hooked back up together. She now is my sponsor. We were just having the best old time. And I got my first paycheck, and I'm going, thank you, God. You know, I know that I have to be able to make this house payment, or I'm not going to be able to stay here. And I love my home. I love my home. I opened that envelope, and it was not enough money to make the house payment. I laughed so hard. I didn't cry. You know what I said? God, you must have another plan in store for me because you're going to have to figure out. I did all the footwork. I did what I was supposed to do. I went and got me a job. I am self-supporting through my own contributions. I am doing what I'm supposed to do. And look, and God said, apparently he said, you know, I guess I want you to teach school because, you know, don't worry about the money. 
and I haven't worried about it. And I've been fine. I always have just what I need. And you know what? I do get to go to AA and Alamon Convention. Y'all invited me here. You know, I get to come anyway. So I had to start praying for Bruce. I was really angry with that man. Oh my God. And we had, I pressed charges. And he went to prison for two years. That's all the judge could give him. And she was mad at him. And she said, Miss Fowler, I hope you can get on with the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, and, um, but you know what? She was right. And I said, the money, how could anybody spend all that money in a short period of time? Well, they did a paper trail. It was all gone. And so they said, you know what? Don't expect to ever get any of it back. So you need to get on with the rest of your life. So I started praying for Bruce and his family every single day. And I continue to. And I don't have that knot in my stomach anymore. I can say his name and I don't feel like punching anybody out. You know, I don't know why it happened or how it happened. You know, it's not about money anyway, is it? You know, it's about being of service and being where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I guess I was supposed to be in school. It's the only thing I can think of. So Blanche and I are together and, you know, I'm teaching school and I think everything's okay and Blanche has an accident. And I am really concerned about her. And so she's in the hospital for seven weeks. And I drive every Saturday to see her. Well, I'm driving a car that is a 10-year-old car with over 100,000 miles on it. And sometimes it just decides not to go. And sometimes you can be driving down the street and it makes that decision. And so Blanche is really worried about me. She said, Stephanie, what are you going to do about a new car? And I said, Blanche, I don't think you can buy a new car on my salary. I said, I've looked this thing over. I don't think I can make a payment. I don't know how. So she started entering sweepstakes for me. And she would call and she'd say, can you stand a Jeep? Would you drive a Jeep? I said, yeah, Blanche, I'll drive a Jeep. So she said, okay, I've got that. Then she'd call and she'd say, how about a red car? I said, I'm driving a red car. She says, okay, you're going to get a red car. And so while she was in the hospital and I was going back and forth, every time I get to the hospital, she'd say to me, Stephanie, are you okay? How was that car? I said, Blanche, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And after seven weeks, Blanche died. Uh, and on the way to the hospital, she was in intensive care. And I said, you know what, God? I did not get to say goodbye to my daddy. And I did not get to say goodbye to Phil. And I really need to say goodbye to Honey. Please. And I was there holding her hand when she took her last breath. And I could say, I hope that you know the lives that you have impacted by being willing to share your program, the program with me. And they gave a memorial for her, and they asked me to speak. And when I was there, before I got there, Laura said, Mama, you're going to tell them how much Blanche influences my life, aren't you? I said, Laura, you hated Blanche. (laughs) She said, it's because, Mom, she wanted you to hold me accountable, and I did not like that. She wanted you to teach me that there were consequences for my choices, and I didn't like that. But if it hadn't been for Blaine, I may not be sober today. Wow. What a beautiful thing. Well, I need to tell you, Blaine has been gone a couple of months, and I get a call from her daughter, and she said, I don't know if you're going to understand this or not, but she said, it's almost like Mom came and visited me last night. She's really, really worried about you and your safety. I'm going, oh, my God, she needs another meeting. You know, she said, uh, she want, I, you need to have her car. She really does want you to have her car. And I said, no, I said, I could never take Lance's 
car, and she said, well, then you're going to have to argue with Mom and God, because this is how it's going to happen. Blanche is driving a 99 Cadillac. It had 23,000 miles on it, and it was all paid for. So I drive up to school in this white Cadillac, teaching first grade, in a town of 1,500 people. And, you know, one of the teachers said, you know what? You were ordering up tuna fish and God was serving caviar. You know, it's really true. One of the things that I want to say to you is that I have a tendency to limit this God. I really don't know how. I didn't know how he was going to help me make car payments. I really couldn't see that. But I had given up trying to figure it out because I had too many stomach aches. And you know what? I don't have to worry. There is a God that is so big. And I, I pray that I don't limit him anymore. I pray that. You know what? You have provided for me another opportunity for the miracle of healing because you listened to me this morning. And I feel better. And I thank you for giving me your time and for inviting me to be here.